Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look at the markets this morning in Australia. The SX200 is off a quarter of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225, half, half an hour into trading, is up 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea is down 0.1%. And futures markets pointing to a drop of 180 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. I'll have more business and finance updates for you. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast for today. Sunny periods, maximum temperature around 26 degrees. Sunny periods in the next couple of days as well. Temperature right now, 23 degrees, 82% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.31, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. The United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, has told the Security Council that President Putin is trying to freeze Ukraine into submission. She told a meeting discussing the conflict that Russia had decided to adopt a strategy of missile strikes on Ukraine's energy supplies because of its failures on the battlefield. She said it was important to remember the people who are suffering as a result. I know we've all seen the photos of cratered playgrounds, bombed out hospitals and destroyed homes across Ukraine. But no photograph can capture the real lives affected, the real people suffering the immense human toll of Russia's war against a fellow UN member state. Ukrainian officials say Russia wants to sap civilian morale with power blackouts just as daylight shortens and temperatures drop. Military analysts have said Russia's recent withdrawal from the city of Kherson is consistent with a plan to dig in on the Dnipro River's east bank. Brazil's president-elect, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, has told the COP27 summit his country is rejoining the fight against climate change, but he added more determination and leadership was needed. There is no climate security for the world without a protected Amazon. The outcome of the Brazilian election was important not only for the peace and well-being of the Brazilian people, but also the survival of the Amazon, and therefore the survival of our planet. The phrase I have heard most often from the leaders of different countries is the following, the world misses Brazil. The head of Britain's security service, MI5, says this year has seen the most significant blow against Russian intelligence services in recent European history. Ken McCallum said this, along with the scale of sanctions against Russia, had taken President Putin by surprise. The BBC's Gordon Carrera has more. Russia will keep attacking the UK, using both covert methods like spies and more open forms of pressure, the head of MI5 warned. But he did say that Russian intelligence had been dealt a strategic blow with more than 600 diplomats, 400 of whom were judged to be spies, having been expelled around the world since the February invasion of Ukraine. He said a further 100 Russians had been denied diplomatic visas on national security grounds to replace those removed from the UK. The US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for more regulatory oversight of cryptocurrency markets. Ms Yellen referred to the recent failure of a major cryptocurrency exchange and said it had major impact on investors. She said risks previously identified over the past year were at the centre of the problems detected last week. Ms Yellen said Congress needed to move quickly to solve those issues. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're looking at the whole world, specifically its record high number of human inhabitants. The global population has just reached 8 billion as of Tuesday, according to the United Nations. This means there's 1 billion more people on Earth now than there was 12 years ago, largely because of improvements in public health, nutrition, personal hygiene and medicine. Middle-income countries, mostly in Asia, accounted for most of the growth, gaining some 700 million people since 2011. India added about 180 million people and is set to surpass China as the world's most populous nation next year. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the record population is an occasion to celebrate diversity and advancements, but he also warns there's a long list of problems for planet Earth as well. How much longer can this rate of growth continue in the face of rising environmental concerns? After 9.15, are hordes of window-cleaning robots about to take over Hong Kong skyscrapers? Researchers at Chinese University hope so. So let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Joining our discussion this morning, we have Paul Yip, the Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration, Professor Shen Jen Far from the Chinese University's Department of Geography and Resource Management, and food security researcher Daisy Tam, who is an Associate Professor from the Baptist University's Department of Humanities and Creative Writing. Good morning to you all, and thanks for joining us on the program. Um, Professor Yip, are you surprised by the figure? I mean, I thought people in general were having fewer kids. Well, it is true. I think uh, we do have a very low fertility rate, but that has only happened in the high-income countries. I think what we have seen now, I think nearly over, I think 50% of the country, they still have the total fertility rate which is the number of the women, the number of babies they have per women is still more than 2.1. So I think at this moment, I think what we are seeing, it is an unequal uh, or uneven distributions, I think, of the growth. And more concerning, because all this growth are particularly happening in these low-income countries, which actually create quite a real challenge, I think, to find sufficient resources, I think, to give a good quality of life, I mean, for these people, but at the same time, I think for the high-income country, because of the low fertility rate, I think uh, some of the country, even in Hong Kong, I think we experience a, what we call a depopulation stage. That means our population size actually are decreasing, and which is have a very high elderly dependency ratio, which create another kind of problems. So, so um, Professor Yip, um, oh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, he, he says he wants um, world leaders to agree on a roadmap and an institutional framework to compensate countries in the global south for climate-related loss and damage that is already causing enormous suffering. Do you see that happening, wealthy countries compensating poorer countries for the problems they've caused? Well, I think in the last um, the climate summits in Nicara, I think they have actually... Um, the voice, I think, from this so-called low-income country or those islands country, I think they do express the concerns about the, the change of the climate and then the rise of the sea level, 
and then that actually affect their survival. So they, I, I think, I think it is the most of those high income country we uh, are the main sources. I think to causing of this uh, climatic changes, and then, so I think there is some sort of responsibility. I think to contribute. I think the improvement of the situation because I think for this country they do not have the means and then the capacity. I think to do this, and then they are. In the receiving ends, I think this undesirable impact. So, what do you think would be a constructive way to compensate them? Just send them money or send them more food? What would be? I think it is a we. It's a, we need to have. Oops, I think uh, Professor, Professor, Yip. <laughs> Professor Yip, are you there? All right, it's all right. Uh, we'll we'll uh, try to contact Professor Yip again. Let's go to uh, Professor Shen. Good morning. Morning. Right, looking looking at the uh, UN figures, um, well, one of the figures uh, is that it projects uh, that world population is to reach a 9.8 billion in 2050 and 11.2 billion in the year 2100. Uh, does that projection sound about right to you? Uh, yes, I think uh, because the, the world uh, population is growing differently in different countries and uh, in the past, particularly in the future, we see that. Uh, some of the Asian countries and also in African countries will continue to have higher fertility rate. So the overall, for the world as a whole, the population is still growing. Yeah. So yeah. there's something still quite alarming. The overall, the world is still how to uh, dealing with the rapid population growth. Yeah. Yeah. So, so part of the finding um, by the UN is that more than half of the projected increase in global population up to 2050 will be in eight countries. And these are the Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, and the Philippines. China is not one of them. Oh, actually, Tanzania is also, but China is one of them. Now, China has actually done quite a lot to, in terms of population control and, and sort of planning ahead. What advice do you think these countries, these eight countries that I just listed, um, should have, maybe to learn from China? Yeah, I think China's uh, uh, experience shows that, of course, we have two things actually very important. One, of course, is the family planning programs. But another is the very rapid uh, social economic changes and urbanization. I think the latter may be more influential, as we know that even today, uh, the, the populations are allowed to have two or three children. The fertility remains very low because this is a new situation of social economic uh, I think, uh, arrangement. So I think uh, what we can do is important to uh, promote development and uh, social advancements so we can eventually change uh, the path of demographic growth in those countries. Yeah, so, it, so development is very fundamental, I think, to this. And uh, China's uh, population, I mean, according to the UN, is expected to shrink next year. Um, how much worse is it going to make uh, the, the aging population problem that it's uh, facing? Yeah, I think uh, the population aging in China will be becoming very serious in some years ahead. Today, I think it's the uh, proportion of elderly population actually not very high today, but it will be increasing very rapidly by 2050. It may reach over 26% to a very high level. So I think China has to prepare for this coming aging, yeah, urgently. But I think, uh, uh, fortunately, the China is now entering a much higher levels of development. So I think we should be able to prepare better for such kind of aging yeah, in the coming years. 
All right. Professor Yip, um, do you think the, um, the best solution for this problem is to just encourage uh, people to have more kids? No, I think what we should do is to invest on the capacity, I think, of the community. I think it is um, no gain and it is not also not much chance that actually I think the fertility uh, rate will be increasing at a high level. I think what we are experiencing is it's really trying to increase, I think, the productivity and the capacity of the population, I think, to cope with the aging situation. Okay. Uh, Daisy Tam, Professor Daisy Tam, are you there? Hi there. Yeah, so, so you with actually you, you with the Department of Humanities at Baptist University and have you you've done research into food security and environmental impact. Um, what are some of the most pressing problems that we have in terms of food security given the large population we have now? Well, to be honest, the number of eight billion um, of global world population this, this is not coming to us at a surprise, it actually came a year later than expected due to the pandemic. So we have been um, globally working towards this problem of increased global population and the question of how to feed um, the world. The problem is not only an increase in birth rates. In terms of the total number, we are looking at a need for increasing um, we need to increase the production of food uh, by 70% uh, by 2050 in order to meet demand. Now, that's just the outset. But if we look a little closer at this kind of increase, not all mouths are equal. Urban population um, and children and people growing in developed economies consume much more natural resources than people in, uh, living in rural areas. So this disparity... Um, and, and by extension, this uh, what Professor Yip was also talking about in terms of climate justice needs to be addressed in, in the kind of solutions that we look at. Now, currently, um, if we just stay on this idea of food supply and feeding uh, the world, already 2.3 billion people are moderately or severely food insecure last year. Uh, again, climate events that disrupt production and displaces population in, 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 and conflict add to that problem. What, what, about, what about this problem of the globalization of food distribution? You know, the attack on Ukraine, because Ukraine is such an important breadbasket, has caused ramifications all over the world. Um, is, is food security um, exacerbated by the fact that food distribution is so globalized? Absolutely. I think that's part of the problem, is that we are reliant on such a connected global food supply chain that is highly industrialized, that is highly intensive. Um, food production is actually, uh, um, well, with the, with the problem of Russia and Ukraine, it has directly driven up food prices 30% just because one part of that whole supply chain has been affected. Um, grain, cooking oil and fertilizer, for example. Um, now, in addition to that, climate events that disrupt, uh, climate events that happen in other parts of the world also affect directly the, the, the food prices um, and the food supply that comes to our table. So 
you know, when we are living and dependent on such a connected system, uh, the vulnerability also comes in that when one part of the chain suffers, we are exposed to price shock um, and 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 um, instability in in the food supply. All right. So, Professor Shen, do you think uh, um, for for like the mainland, for example, it should rely more on uh, domestic uh, production of food? Yeah, I think uh, basically you can, you can see that the China is actually or always majorly rely on the food production in the country. But if you're looking in the future, if population shrink, you can see if China maintains the same production output, so China can in the future be an exporter of food to other countries. So I would think, yeah, of course, uh, China's country is um, uh, input some food from elsewhere, but I think largely depends on in meeting the needs of its population. So basically, China has been passed a very critical point, so that we are getting into more stable supplies of the basic needs of people in the country. Yeah. Yeah, but China also um, is is part of this um, global food supply chain. What is a way forward, not just for China, but also China and the rest of the world, to make food supply just more sustainable? Do, do we all have to produce food domestically in, in our own countries now? Is that the way forward? No, no, no. no. Of course, because different countries in different situations, I think we should uh, mobilize all the possible resources in different countries. For example, in, in, in America, maybe they have quite a large uh, output of, of food available to the global market. So we should make use of all these kind of resources. I think the main problem is that actually, I think, um, according to many studies, that the world output of the food is actually adequate in meeting the needs of people in the world. The problem is distribution and uh, the purchasing power of the poor countries, whether they can able to acquire enough resources to buy the food from the market. And Professor Yip, after listening to what uh, Professor Tam is saying and uh, what Professor Shen, Shen has been saying, do, do you think the, the, the real problem is not to do with uh, the growing population number, but it's uh, more about uh, the consumption per capita? Well, yes, I think it's, it's, it's kind of this huge disparities, I think, in terms of the ability, I think, to buy, to acquire sufficient food and resources, I mean, for each country. So I think um, I think it is a time that the United Nations or the international body I think should come up with a some sort of a structure which ensure I think that for those people who have I think will have the ability and then the mechanism I think to contribute I mean to those who have not I think there is no point I think to ask each country to be self-sufficient because I mean what we see now. Because we are at a different stage of development, it is difficult. But I think everyone should be hold some sort of responsibilities. I mean, how to improve the overall situation? Yeah. So Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary, also on food supply aside, he's saying that anger and resentment against developed countries are reaching a breaking point, and that um, if we, also there are other issues such as nuclear disarmament terrorism, global health, we don't address some of these problems. Um, even if we solve the food supply, we're facing some major crisis. What do you think of that thought? Well, I think... Yep. Yeah. Professor Ip, are you there? No. Um, if this is about me, what I really think that I think we... we I mean, this 
the NATO's or these different organizations, I think they really should have some sort of um, commitment. I think uh, uh, whether working on the sustainable development goal or something like that is an international responsibility, I think, towards the situation. Right. And earlier, um, uh, Professor Shan, we were talking about uh, China's aging population problem. Um, when we look at uh, other places, for example, India, which is expected to surpass uh, China's population uh, very soon, um, it doesn't have it doesn't have this uh, problem, or it doesn't have such a serious problem because uh, a lot of the its population is uh, not the elderly, but uh, uh, they have a uh, more young uh, young people, right? But actually, I mean, the, for any societies, okay, although we look at the proportions, the proportion of elder population for those growing populations, they are, they are low. But in terms of the number of elderly, I think India is also increasing. Because over time, you have more and more people. You also have more and more elder people. So you still have to deal with your growing number of elder population, although proportionally you are not very high, is it? Yeah. Right. So, so this uh, impact won't be that great on uh, places like India then? I mean, yes, yes. Yeah, um, you, you know, some of the highest birth rates are actually in, in sub-Saharan Africa nowadays. Uh, but given that, they also have higher mortality, infant mortality. They have the, the, the lifespan is actually shorter. So do, do you think those things kind of balance out in a way? No, but you can see that because although they have mortality is, is higher than other countries, but overall, you still see more, uh, more growth, yeah, more natural growth than the, the deaths. So a much higher number of births than the deaths. So you can see that the overall population is growing. And yeah. uh, with the more advancements, because the health improvement is much quicker than fertility decline. So you will see very rapid population growth is going to come in the future. So we know that China has uh, increasing um, influence in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Do you see it as an obligation, as a wealthier country that China is, to compensate these poorer countries because of, of some of the climate changes problems that we have caused? I think there's, okay, there's two things. One is about the, where the, the China and Africa link. I think there's a lot of cooperation going on in terms of supporting African development in different ways, either by the state or by the private sectors. But in terms of global uh, carbon emissions, climate changes, I think that it has to look at uh, historically and overall how, of course, China is going to play a very important role in this solution of the global uh, climate crisis. Yeah. Right. And uh, Professor Tam, I mean, when we look at uh, this population growth, we, we I mean, uh, Professor Shen, he just mentioned uh, carbon emissions. Is there an estimate of how much uh, planet Earth can actually uh, um, sustain?
are, are associated with packaging and transportation. Now, the, 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 I disagree a little bit with what uh, the previous speakers have said about changing our food system. We are currently over-reliant on imports. Hong Kong is a great example for that. We are a developed economy. We have zero agriculture. We import over 95% of the food that we eat. Now, relying on a global industrialized food production system means that not only are we exposing ourselves to all the vulnerabilities that we have mentioned, climate change, climate events, crisis, transportation, etc., we are also... Um, dependent on, um, on uh, we are dependent on uh, other people for our everyday survival needs. Now, this long supply chain actually is problematic, uh, not only economically, but also um, in terms of sustainability because of these long supply chains. And many developed economies are pivoting towards a much more balanced or at least to have, to take on some production and supply um, responsibility of, of food supply. We're not talking about going back. I think that's also one of the things that we often associate with agriculture and production of food, that it is going back towards an older sort of economy. That's not true. With technology and agri-tech these days, we can produce food with a lot less land, with a lot less um, 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 pressure on, 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 on the environment. So that's one with supply, but also we need to address the problem of urban population, um, cities, this resentment that you talk about, about people living in developed economies. That's because we consume 75% of the natural resources and produce 75% of the carbon emissions because we have a very high energy intensive type of lifestyle. We eat more meat and that's also something that we can change immediately. Yeah, that meat consumption, I mean, that, that also involves using a, a large amount of arable land to grow food for fodder for the animals, right? So, so, so um, how, what do you see as the moral obligations for these wealthier countries that, as you mentioned, uh, consume 70% of the act actual supply? What do you think is a moral obligation to do now to change the way they grow food? the way we eat. I think that's the most important. 50% of the carbon emissions from the food industry are due to the production of meat. And as you say, ruminant animals such as beef um, really is emission intensive. So we need to eat down the food chain. That's, I think, um, that's one of the responsibilities we can take up on. The next thing, and, and it's in, I think it's in addition to a moral obligation, I, I think it is, it makes economic sense too to shorten supply chains and, and um, to diversify our, our, our food supply system. Um, we should, should uh, yeah, we, we, should also, we should also look at um, Singapore because they are, you know, developed economies, we like comparing ourselves to them. They have set a target of 30% by 2030 to produce 30% uh, of the food that they eat. And China actually is very, um, 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 as, as much as they are developing, they have a very strict target for each um, district to produce their own food because China is the second largest food importer in the world. Is, is that, Professor Shen, is, is that happening in China? That um, districts have to pr 
satisfy their own food production in, in such a way to make it more sustainable? Is that, is that happening? Is that possible? No, I think the, the, the China, in the, in the country, they have certain kind of planning for different regions to produce certain amount of food. But I don't think that every region is going to be 100% self-sufficient. But they have a planning for allocation of tasks and the plan to ensure that we have sufficient production of food, including the, the pigs as well, to meet the needs of the market. Is of course, in the meantime, because China is so large, we still import quite a large amount of food from elsewhere as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, so Professor Tam mentioned earlier that what we need to be doing is to eat down the supply chain, meaning less um, meat consumption, more vegetables. The exact opposite is kind of happening in China right now as China gets richer. Um, we're just coming up to the news, so we might have to stop you halfway. But but what what do you think of that idea? Is, is, it, is it possible to ask Chinese people who are getting richer to reduce meat consumption? I think it's, it's possible. It's kind of, of culture and food culture. If we promote such kind of, of living style, I think it has a great potential. Yeah. Because sometimes maybe we barely eat too much. It's also not healthy. Yeah. Right. For some rich people, I will say. All right, uh, all right, uh, Professor Shen, unfortunately, um, I have to stop you here because uh, we need to take a short break for the news. Uh, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Professor Shen Jenfa from the Chinese University's Department of Geography and Resource Management. We'll uh, continue our discussion with Professor Yip and Professor Tam in three minutes' time. And after 9.15, are hordes of window cleaning robots about to take over Hong Kong skyscrapers? We'll speak to a university professor to find out more. If you want to ask our guests questions, or just comment on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RCHK Radio 3, or give us a call at 233-88266. Now, here's the weather. Sunny intervals with a top temperature of around 26 degrees. Winds moderate easterlies, fresh offshore at first. Right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is at 24 degrees. Relative humidity, 79%. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. This morning, we're talking about global population that has just reached 8 billion on Tuesday. Still with us on the program is Paul Yip, the Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration, and food security researcher Daisy Tam, who is an Associate Professor from the Baptist University's Department of Humanities and Creative Writing. Now, before the news, I mentioned the UN's projection, um, which says that uh, world population is expected to reach um, 9.8 billion in 2050 and 11.2 uh, billion in the year 2100. And uh, before the news, Professor Shen, who is uh, still with us, said he said uh, that figure sounds about right. Um, Professor Yip, what do you think of this figure and uh, will this growth level off? I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there because I think what we have been seeing, I think this low fertility uh, will uh, kick in, I think, to this existing high fertility uh, level country. So I think what we expect, I think the growth, I think, will be um, even slower than before. So I think now what we are talking about is just really less than 1% of the growth now. So. And also, you really don't know. There's so much uncertainty about 
the epidemics, the war, and all those sort of things. So I think what we, I mean, we don't really have a crystal ball, but what we as what the projection really means, if the present con- situation continues, that's just what we're going to have. But I think uh, there will be still a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, so the you know the UN report actually found that in 2020 the global population growth rate actually l- fell by one percent. Um, it's the first time since 1950, and obviously this was largely to do with COVID. So COVID has really showed us um, that the large population growth really posed challenges to uh, our healthcare system, or, or in some places a lack of a healthcare system. What kind of um, um, problems do you envisage in, in the coming years as the population continued to grow in public health? I think what my real concern is about this, the so much disparities about the resources, I think, all over the world. I think even the COVID, I think it actually it has highlighted, I think, the differences in the capacity in responding to the epidemics. I think the rich countries, I think they would have sufficient resources to acquire the vaccine. I think the poor country, I think they, do, they didn't even uh, they have the, uh, the, the single dosage of the vaccine. So I think what we really like to see, I think in the future, how the international body, I think can somehow, I think can mobilize, I think the, the limited resources, I think just to make sure that it's a low-income country. They do can receive their fair share. Yeah, Professor Tan, what do you think? Disparity in access to health care? Um, I absolutely agree with the problem of disparity because at some point it is not whether it is vaccines or food, it's not just about the availability or the amount of supply. It is about um, equal access. Um, In the case of food, for example, we have produced enough food to feed the world many years now, yet people are still suffering from food insecurity because of unequal access. Now, we've talked a little bit about the rural sort of population, but bringing it closer to home, I think even very rich developed economies such as Hong Kong, um, we do see food insecurity. Um, It manifests in different ways. In, in In developing economies, we see them as um, stunting growth, famine, you know, um, and, and a lot of like extreme um, cases, chronic chronic hunger. In developed economies, we see more malnutrition and manifesting, um, and food insecurity manifesting as obesity, right? Um, so these are all public health related um, issues that has to do with the way we eat. Um, and the different access and the dis- you know, Hong Kong having such a uh, huge gap between the rich and the poor often means that we overlook um, the issues faced by the more vulnerable population. So I suppose, uh, are you saying that, you know, more public education is needed um, for people to basically con- consume uh, more environmentally friendly um, foods, such as less meat and more vegetables? Public education, is that, that's, is that what you're saying? Um, to change our diets, yes. I think awareness and behavioral change is something that we can do and should do right away. Um, in terms of disparity in access to healthy and safe uh, 
food, which is um, which is something that should be accessible to all, we need to look at the much bigger picture, which is to put food security on the government agenda. Because food security not looks only looks at availability, we also look at equal access and knowledge to use the food. So it's, it's about having affordable. Uh, food that is healthy and nutritious, and also knowing how to use it so that we could eat well and live well. All right, Professor Yip, what's your thought on that? I mean, should we just all change our diets? Well, I think the people are changing their diet right now. Right? I'm, I've, I can see more vegetarians actually happening in the community now. But yes, it's very true. I think raising the awareness and then such that... Um, the people can change their attitude, and at the end, I think their behavior changes. So I think hopefully, I think if it's even we talk about not only changing the diet, but how do we save food, how not to waste so much food. I mean, what we can see, there's so much wastage, I think, uh, in our daily practices, even in a restaurant, in all those places. I think there's, there's a lot of things to be done. I mean, like the food bank, I mean, what we see, there's so many food that can be consumed. They are being put in the tip. I mean, every day because I think we just uh, do not do the planning or we do not save the food. I mean, wisely. Yeah. Do, do you do you think that more can be done in Hong Kong to educate the public and uh, uh, about food consumption, the way we eat? I mean, the, the government has a big campaign on asking people not to uh, waste food, not not to overload their plates when they go to restaurants, not to uh, throw away food that can be redistributed. But what about the diet aspect that Daisy Tam was talking about? Just consume in a different way. Do you think enough well, public think education? Yeah, it's a start from the public education, I think. Yeah. How, how? Just just advise people that your way of consumption is killing all of us? <laughs> what do you in, in terms of meat consumption? Okay, well, let's go. I, I think we're forward. I think Professor Yip's line there, it's a little bit unstable sometimes. But um, Professor Tam, what, what do you think? You, 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 you yeah. keep talking about eating down the food chain. Is Hong Kong doing enough to promote that? I think Hong Kong has done a lot of changes in the last 10 years. I think people are much more aware and a lot more people have changed and shifted their diets. What I think we need to continue doing is to make this financially accessible because still eating well, eating healthy, vegetarian options and the restaurants that provide these options are often a little bit pricier. So we need to democratize this way of eating and way of life um, to make it popular. I think um, there are already very good options when we see protein, plant protein-based uh, substitutes being available um, in, in, in very uh, popular kind of uh, chains, in, in Hong Kong fast food chains even, that they use this kind of protein substitute. That's a good step. And what Professor Eyip also mentioned, which is extremely important, is that wastage, right? Um, Hong Kong still is struggling with over 3,000 tons of food being thrown into landfill every single day. So a combination, and again, when we are, if we are talking about changing our ways of life and changing our behaviors, this is something that we can all do quite immediately, and it has this compound effect that, 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 that we cannot underestimate. 
You know, my students actually recently produced a really interesting story about these charity groups. What they do is they go around bakeries and, and other food shops in the community and they collect unsold bread and then they, they distribute them three times a week to needy people, to homeless people, to, to cleaning workers who might be working late at night. Do you, do you feel there's a need for a, a bigger version of that in Hong Kong, like a, maybe a government-run version for food redistribution? Well, I actually run uh, <laughs> I actually run one of these food rescues um, every week, and I, I, I wonder if your student has not joined us. Every Friday, for example, last week, we, we collected over 2,000 loaves of bread, precisely the way you mentioned, because these are surplus food, perfectly edible, no longer economically viable because the shops are closed, you know, they can't sell it the next day because the best before dates, expiry dates, etc. So I think this this area of collecting and repurposing edible food and to use food as food is the most important in, in the in a city like Hong Kong where we don't produce much. Um, so that's number one. And then the next thing about whether it is a government-driven or government-supported uh, policy change in terms of how we deal with these surpluses, I think it's a long overdue conversation. Uh, food banks have existed over 10, 15 years. Um, that was when we had the last, last, uh, last economic crisis and we realized and we drew up the poverty line and we realized that people were not food secure in Hong Kong. And um, now I think we are ripe. We are at this mature stage where we can talk about policy change in the UK um, and in France, for example. Um, there are very supportive environments to encourage businesses and corporates to donate their services. Hong Kong is really done by charities, lobbying, asking, and depending on people's sort of goodwill and moral responsibility. I think we can do more. So you, you, you're thinking a government-run program would be a better way forward, do you think? Well, I think a government-run program is one of the possibilities. That's a very centralized kind of solution. I think we could also support all the community groups and charities that are already out there doing good work. Um, you know, I think that there are many sort of local grassroots organizations and charities serving, as you say, the homeless, the vulnerable, the elderly, and all this. And, and we partner with a lot of them. Uh, where we do lack is the ability to scale up because we are, we are dependent on, um, on, on grants and maybe subsidies, and these are hand-to-mouth kinds of uh, existence for these organizations. So I think we have, we have different possibilities of answering to this call. I think supporting community uh, communities, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Supporting work that is already being done right now, I think, is probably more effective. Now, there's an, actually another program in Hong Kong in which this surplus food are collected in bins and then recycled. I mean, these, this is food unfit for human consumption, but recycled into useful energy. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I mean, that's another way that's further down the quote-unquote food chain, right? Like, so for those... Um, materials that are no longer edible, the fruit peels, you know, the bones and stuff. We see compost bins, for example, or composting initiatives or even composting plants being built in Hong Kong. Um, I think that's good. That's being changed into or that's being transformed into 
um, into into food that can that can feed the soil, right? And I think that's super important. In Hong Kong, the the question I have is, you know, can we also in parallel increase the agriculture that we can use the compost for, right? Um, because it's great to make compost, but we don't have agriculture, so where is it going? The second problem is the transportation and the logistics, right? So if we don't have accessible, and this, and by this I mean physical accessibility, if we can't have a really nearby bin or a service that we can bring our surpluses to, we're not going to carry our food waste or, or, or even our recyclables halfway across town just so that we can put it in the right bin. Right. And uh, Professor Yip, I mean, um, we've we focused a lot on uh, food security and uh, food waste. I mean, apart from this issue, what other um, impact are you worried about when we talk about uh, population growth? I think what we see it is the oversupply of the young people in the low-income countries. Because uh, what you can see, if we do not create sufficient job opportunities for them, I think sometimes this is where the social problems uh, arise. So I think what we see, it is it is good that we have a young people, so I think in, but at the same time, I think the economic development, I think should be able to develop, I mean, to absorb, I think, these additional people, I think, to the workforces. And at the same time, so I think we have the aging population in this high-income country, and how can we mobilize this sort of human traffic, I mean, in order I mean, to be able to compensate, I mean, each other. I mean, if there is a, a surplus of people here, and how can we move these people or provide sufficient training and education, I mean, to make them, I mean, to be able, I mean, to offset, I mean, the deficiency in the other, in the other groups. All right, so Professor Yip, uh, we'll have to leave it here for now. And uh, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Paul Yip, the Chair Professor of Population Health at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. Many thanks also to uh, Professor Daisy Tam, who is an uh, Associate Professor from the Baptist University's Department of Humanities and Creative Writing. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. It's now coming up to 19 minutes past nine and it's time to turn to our next topic today and it's about new window cleaning robots. To tell us more, we're joined on the line by Darwin Lau, an associate professor from the Chinese University's Department of Mechanical and Automation Engineering. Good morning, Professor Lau. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So um, why were these robots created? Yeah, so these robots we've been developing uh, because of the need of the industry. So we all know Hong Kong has a lot of high-rise buildings, and the maintenance and even construction of these is, you know, fairly um, laborious in the sense where, you know, workers have to work on gondolas at high heights, and it's a dangerous operation. So by having these robots, we want to be able to, you know, relieve some of that uh, dangerous jobs and also improve the quality of construction. So, you know, these are cable-driven robots. What, what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate? Yes, so a cable-driven robot is, you can imagine, it's like a, a bit like a puppet in, in, in easier terms to understand. So you have strings that pull on the object, which is the, the robot holding, let's say, the robot arm to do window cleaning. And then by controlling the cables in a coordinated manner, this sort of puppet 
you know, would be able to move along the facade. So that's what we mean by a, a cable-driven robot. Well, where, where is the puppeteer? Where, where is a person controlling the, the, the cables? Yes, uh, thank you. That's a good question. The puppeteer essentially is the motors that we have installed to drive the cables. Uh, so actually the human doesn't directly control the motors. What the human does is monitor the machine and also you know, uh, check up on the, the planning or even assist in the planning done by the robot in order to know where the windows are, where to clean, and then the system would be able to automatically go and do the, the actions. Is, is the person doing the remote control on site or just on some server somewhere? Um, actually, both is okay. I mean, generally speaking, we probably have the, 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 the person closer to the site um, or even connected through a cable um, initially. But of course, you know, a system like that allows for being at a further away location. Um, of course, you know, we have to consider issues like um, safety due to connection, internet connection, etc. So, so more, most likely on site, I would imagine it would be uh, actually next to the machine or you know, at a different like, sheltered location, but through a wide connection. Right. And, and how do these robots compare to uh, um, robots that are already in use in the commercial sector? Yes, so, so current robots um, used for, let's say, cleaning or painting, um, there, there's a few main differences that I'd like to highlight. So, um, <clears throat> for example, there are some climbing robots that for very lightweight applications could climb on top of buildings, but if you've got heavier duty jobs to do, um, it, they're a bit harder. So then, you know, there has been people working on, groups working on uh, cable suspended robots. So cables that are suspending on top, a bit like gondolas or variations of gondolas. Um, and usually those ones um, are mostly suited for flat walls. Um, so that's what, uh, one major difference. So what we've been doing is to install a robot arm on top of our robot um, and actuated by cables, not just on the top, but top and bottom. So this does two things. One, it increases the stability of the system. So unlike gondolas that will sway like a pendulum, uh, we have increased stability. The other thing is by having uh, a robot arm, we could actually have walls that have features. So if you have a and air conditioning sticking out, etc. then we, our robot operates on the outside of that and the robot arm, like a human, could reach in and clean the windows. So how does the productivity of these robots compare with the human cleaners? Can it do more? Are they quicker? Yeah, so, so currently um, we're in development, uh, we, are, we, we usually start off slow, but the, alter, the goal of the development is to actually match uh, human working speeds. So, you know, actually in the roadmap, um, it's a nice to have to be faster than humans, but actually it's not that mandatory, in, at least you know, in the perspective of <clears throat> the, say, the contractors, because robots could work longer hours potentially, and also um, the safety benefit that we gain and also the, the lack of labor issue that we have with human workers can be resolved even if the robots are working at similar speeds as humans. So in the long run, will these robots put uh, many um, window cleaners out of their jobs? Yes, uh, so good question. So, so regarding the, the job issue of window cleaners, um, actually what, what happened at the start of the project, and that's sort of why one of the reasons we identified this project um, to work with, actually is because we spoke to the building management uh, uh, companies and property management, you know, and, and they you know, expressed that actually their workers do not want to go on these gondolas. So it's actually a very dangerous job. They, they, they are struggling to find professional workers that can and willing to uh, spend long hours on these gondolas um, because it, it's harsh conditions. You could imagine, um, let's say, a sunny day on the ground um, is maybe 30 degrees and then on high heights it might be 50 degrees. 
and also raining and they don't get you know a lot of rest hours uh, because going to gondola to a rest position to go to the toilet break is, is inconvenient so there's a lot of reasons um, and the safety issues behind it so actually what we see is there's a lack of workers that we hope these robots to fill in rather than robots taking over existing workers do you, do you see these robots being used for other purposes other than cleaning windows um, yes, yes. So, if, you know, in the development of the robot, we plan it to be a, a generic platform. So really uh, a lot of tasks um, such as uh, painting of walls, uh, uh, maybe cleaning tiles or even uh, check, uh, uh, spraying water to check if there's any water leakage on windows, um, even light repair works, inspection works. These are all things that currently there's a lot of demand in, in high heights work that this robot platform um, should be able to help to 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 resolve these issues. Right. So, so when will they be used uh, by the uh, uh, or be used in the commercial sector? Yeah. So currently, it's still um, fairly early in the development cycle. So the project has been uh, funded uh, as a research grant by the uh, Innovation Technology Commission. So then, in, in this sort of early stage work, um, you know, the first step is to make sure the robot as a concept will work and also could you know, be able to meet certain requirements um, that will show feasibility for the next step. So the next step <clears throat> is for us to do more site trials, increase the stability, check the stability and the speed of the robot to make sure that we could get it to a appropriate speed and also consider practical issues like mounting on frames, etc. So with the, the company um, that we are collaborating with, you know, the plan would be to have something that could move towards market in the next uh, maybe one to two years. All right. And uh, you talked about uh, many of the robots, the benefits and the strengths. Um, are there any weaknesses in, in, in these robots? I mean, are there height limits that uh, that they can't go uh, beyond? Um, currently, um, these robots sort of are designed in, in a similar mindset with gondolas. So the height limits um, not generally a very large issue. But uh, certain issues, you know, they, you mentioned maybe, you know, constraints or things we need to be consider with these sort of robots. I, I think it would be a, there will be probably about two or three. The first one would be the support structure on the building. Because after all, you know, for something relatively heavy, just like gondolas, we do need to actually mount it on buildings. Um, so especially for, let's say, older buildings, then they may not have such infrastructure to be able to mount. So then the... Uh, building construction company or the service maintenance uh, co company has to consider um, how do we need to modify the roof conditions for these robots to operate. So that's um, one of the major issues currently. And of course, for new buildings, um, the question would be whether we consider in, input, implanting such infrastructure when it's built, just like how gondola systems are being done. So that's number one. Um, the second one would also be the intelligence of the robot. So we were working on you know, increasing the intelligence of the robot um, in the sense of, let's say, being able to detect if the windows are not clean even after wiping and, and, and go and repeat it maybe, or you know, have more intelligence to be able to relieve, increase the autonomy level to uh, relieve the human from being you know, in interacting with the system um, as much. Um, and the final one, I would say, is also... Uh, checking through all of the regulations and you know, safety issues concerned with operating equipment, especially robots, which are fairly new um, in these real-world scenarios. So, you know, humans, there are already a lot of rules and regulations on on how they could do high-high work, so let's say. 
but robots is, is a new thing. So you know, this requires working with a lot of uh, parties to check and to ensure the safety of, uh, I guess, the workers are now okay, but also the public. Right. So two questions. What is the weight of this robot compared with a gondola with a couple of human beings? And secondly, you talked about intelligence. How does the robot know that the window is clean right now? Yes. So um, the first question regarding the weight, the weight at, at the moment is actually similar to the weight of a gondola. So the weight of our platform um, is 300 kilograms. So it's, it's on a, you know, I mean, I think it's actually lighter. It should be lighter than gondolas with humans on top. So, so that's number one. Uh, number two, regarding the how, currently how it works, actually the, the current system actually will have a recording device where the human could, in a teleoperated manner, be able to see what is happening. So they can actually remotely see what the robot sees as if they were there. Can you tell us what this robot actually physically looked like? Is it is it like a gondola or is it like a Spider-Man going up and down? What what does it physically look like? Yes, so I would say it's a, a look more like a gondola. So you could the way to imagine it would be. The four corners um, of the building would have cables that, as a you know, like an, in an X manner, connect in the centre, and the centre is the, the the platform, the carrier, and on top of that carrier, we have um, the most notably a robot arm that comes off it, which holds the tools to do the you know, contact base, either cleaning or uh, painting. Um, so it looks uh, like that. So you're uh, not quite, I think, a Spider-Man. Um, it, it maybe in the sense where. The, 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 the robot is connected to all four corners, but it probably, you know, in a shape, if we ignore the cable arrangement, it would look more like a gondola. All right, uh, Professor Lau, this all sounds very interesting. I hope you'll come up with a, a robot, for, a window cleaning robot for domestic use uh, sometime in the future. And, very useful. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Darren Lau, Associate Professor from the Chinese University's Department of Mechanical and Automation Engineering. Many thanks also to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and producer, Yuki. Now, here's the weather. Sunny intervals with a top temperature of around 26 degrees. Winds, moderate easterlies, fresh offshore at first. Right now it's 24 degrees, relative humidity 79%. I'm Dr. Siu Kao Kao, pediatric respirologist. The best protection for kids aged 6 months or above against the surging pandemic is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 isn't like having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death. Vaccination can reduce severe cases in pregnant women who can then pass antibodies to the fetus.